If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheiks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheiks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is hour number two for the World According to Zig podcast for May 21st, 2017. This is the weekly show that's one of the very few places where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from the conservative perspective in this crazy upside-down world. And in hour number two, we are usually very uh, pleased to be joined by a special guest. Last week, we had a great conversation with uh, CNN commentator and Weekly Standard editor Bill Kristol. This week, we're going to be speaking with one of my good friends, Congressman John Yarmouth, who's a Democrat who I have known for many years. We used to host a TV show together in Louisville, Kentucky, and his career has gone north. Mine has gone south ever since then. But, uh, John, uh, always great to talk to you. We check in with you about once a quarter, and I never thought I would be living in a world where Bill Kristol and John Yarmouth would have basically the same perspective on a Republican president. Oh, it's it's just uh, Alice in Wonderland these days, <laughs> and you know I, I was I was talking to my son Aaron today, who's a journalist now. You know him well. And I was saying I, I can't believe that every every columnist that I've read in the last two weeks across the entire political philosophical spectrum has written the same column. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Trump said he wanted to bring the country together. <laughs> yes, right. So, so- so there's, yes. there's been some unity, although um, mostly just in intellectual media circles. Certainly uh, his cult has not yet uh, bought into the, the conventional wisdom. Uh, John, in all, in all seriousness, I mean, we're, there's, a, there's a, a humorous element to what's been going on, but there's also obviously some very serious things right. as well. Of all the things that have occurred, let's just narrow it down from the last two weeks, <laughs> starting with, say, the, the firing of James Comey. Of all of the, and you could say it was a dozen or so, different quote-unquote bombshells that have been reported about Trump, is there one that sticks out for you as a Democratic congressman as being the most significant? Well, I'd have to say the sharing of the intelligence uh, that the Israelis had given us, uh, because not only was that very damaging, and it, it illustrates so many of the the dispositional problems that we face with Donald Trump, his impulsiveness, his, his need to show off, um, his indiscriminateness, uh, just so many things that um, are troubling. And, 
and pose, I think, threats to our, our country. Uh, so that, that'd be number one, I would say. Well, let's talk about that one for a second, because there are mm-hmm. those who have tried to say, well, first of all, it wasn't illegal because he's the president, which apparently appears to be true. Uh, you would acknowledge that, right? Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Okay, so that wasn't illegal. Now, his argument on that is that, um, that he was actually trying to, for humanitarian purposes, mm-hmm. he was trying to engage the, the Russians' help there, and that that the real culprit here was the leaker who may have endangered uh, the Israeli intelligence there within ISIS. What do you make of that explanation? Well, it sounds like pretty much self-serving rationalization after the fact, but um, I know from numerous um, first-hand sources and second-hand sources how serious the intelligence community, our intelligence community, um, considered that uh, that action and you know i would suspect that that many of the leaks that we're see- leaks that we're seeing now are coming from the intelligence community because they're they're so furious at at this president so um again un- unfortunately when you have somebody who's store and some, somebody like president trump he and his administration where their stories change minute to minute it's hard to believe anything they say. And, again, that's another one of the problems we have with, uh, with this administration. There is no credibility there. Yeah, I agree with that part. Is that Everything they say, you know, it, you really can't even take seriously. One, because it's going to change probably the next day. Um, mm-hmm. But as, for, with regard to the leaks, you said something interesting there. And, you know, the motivation of the leakers I, I find to be – Fascinating. Now, the Trump people will tell you this is leftover Obama people, uh, deep staters who have it in for Trump because he's trying to uh, change the world for the better. I, I know you don't agree with. But by the way, what do you make of that uh, that argument? <laughs> well, I think that's all he's all he's got. All he can say that help, that helps his own cause. All right, but that's, that's the only argument they have. And I, I you know, my attitude would be. Well, show me some evidence that you know where these leakers. If you knew who they were, then you would stop them or you would fire them. So it's it's easy to guess that that's what it is. But if he had any evidence of it, he'd get rid of them. You know, I I agree with that. But I, I'm more fascinated by the motivations and what you're telling no. me, based upon your first and second hand sources with regard to the intelligence community as a as a congressman. Uh, I'm curious. Do you ag- agree with those who have? supposed and theorized that what's really happening is that there are people who are close to the situation who are scared out of their minds for the country about what's going on here and are taking risks that they would not normally take because they believe that the ends justify the means. Do you, what do you make of that theory? I think that is extremely well put. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, I think that's, that's what I'm guessing. Uh, that's the way I would uh, uh, interpret what I'm hearing from those sources, that that's the reason. And would you say that that is a consensus view among uh, others in Congress that you've spoken to here? Yes, I would. All right. Now, exactly. let's talk about some of the other things that, that have occurred in the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, to, you know, it's hard to choose for, for me what is <laughs> what is the most outrageous, but... I have to say that the the comments you know, that meeting with the Russians was off the charts in in all in every way possible. But the, the the what we learned Friday, the Comey is a real nut job. The pressure is off. Now you're 
you're a, a Georgetown Law graduate, and uh, I'm curious from a legal perspective, because this very easily could end up, you know, you, you could very easily end up being a House impeachment manager, uh, make, mm-hmm. making this argument in a couple of years once you guys take over the House, uh, which we'll talk about momentarily. But, but do, does that fit to you, uh, the definition of obstruction of justice? Um, it's getting very close. Again, you know, the legal, a legal case of obstruction of justice has to have intent. Um, it sounds to me like that's probably the clearest evidence or almost self-admission of, of intent that you could have. Right. Yeah. So uh, it seems to me to meet, meet all the elements of it, Wait, not just that statement, but when you combine that admission of, of intent with the other actions he took, that seems to me to be a clear uh, set of set of uh, facts that would that would indicate obstruction of justice. I I think the way you put it was was perfect. He's admitting it. It's not just yeah. it's not just <laughs> a, you know a indication that it happened. It's an, effectively an admission. And uh, you know, there's so many th- when whenever the news, as you know well, John, whenever there's this much news, a lot of things end up getting lost in all of this. Mm-hmm. And, and and one of the things that I think get gets lost in all of this is that when you look at this from Comey's perspective and, you know, there's been a lot of uh, speculation is, well, why didn't he come forward if he felt like he was being intimidated by Trump? And my point is, hold on a second. He didn't know for sure how to interpret those comments until after he was fired for one, and then learned that the reason why he was fired was because of the very investigation Trump was asking him to stop. Right. Exactly. That's exactly right. And you are right. It is, it is really hard to kind of follow the threads in, in all of this stuff because it's, again, it's hour by hour, and it's, it, it's coming at you so fast and from so many directions. It's very, very difficult. Well, well let me throw another one at you that but, I think is— But as, you did great there. You did great there. <laughs> it's, John, I knew eventually, if we were friends long enough, that you and I would agree on something. And, right. it, and, and that Donald Trump has finally been able to do that is an amazing accomplishment. But um, well, we we agree we on the we agree on the fact that Gracie is adorable. Well, there you go. That that, that, that well, that's hard to argue with. I I yeah. think I think even Trump would probably agree with that. Although I, I wouldn't want I wouldn't want him anywhere near her. <laughs> no, but but, but, but that's another story for another day. But okay, so here's another thing I think got lost, and I, and I have a theory on this. I want to run past you. So so what we learned on Thursday about Mike Flynn and Turkey. And you combine that with, by the way, the episode that occurred with these Turkish goons beating up uh, yeah. American protesters, which I think is significant, not just because it's outrageous, but I think it it goes to uh, the Turkish basically dictator's mindset about how much Trump was going to mm-hmm. protect him. Right. I mean, if you, if, you, if you put all these pieces together, here's where I'm headed with this. I'm wondering, based upon what we've learned about Flynn being an agent for Turkey, still being hired by the transition team as uh, the national security advisor, despite this knowledge, is it not possible that Mueller may start this thing, much like Ken Starr started in Whitewater and ends up with Monica Lewinsky? Might we start this with Russia and end up in Turkey? Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, uh, the following, the connecting the dots uh, with Flynn uh, can lead in a, a multitude of directions and a, to a multitude of people. And, 
clearly, I mean, to hear the other day in another news account that Trump still wants to bring him back into the administration is one of the most bizarre, frightening things that I've ever heard. All right. Uh, go ahead. Keep yeah. going. No, go ahead. No, 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 go no ahead. but, but see, see, this is what fascinates me about this story. As you know, I, I like to try to figure out mysteries, right? And, and, I'm, mm-hmm. and I'm always trying to figure out a path where it's consistent with everything that we think we know. Now, to be fair, there's a lot of things we don't know for sure. There's a lot of things we think we know, uh, and I think the media might have jumped the gun on some of this, but in, by, by and large, you know, I'm pretty confident that the essence of what was reported this week is probably true. But, but I can't figure out a scenario that makes total sense here uh, with regard to Trump's involvement specifically with Russia. And I'm, you know, I, I keep going back to the, to the idea of one of the key ways to, or needs to interpret Trump's actions is that you need to understand just how dumb he is. And, and, and follow me here. Mm-hmm. Now, with a normal president, even George Bush, who now seems like a genius in, in comparison mm-hmm. uh, to Trump, you, you understood that he had a basic idea of the way the government works, you know, what the rules are, you know, basic knowledge. He probably paid attention to most of his intelligence briefings. You know, he had basic knowledge, yeah. right? You would acknowledge that, even though you were a critic of Bush. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right, so, so he, was, he was in the realm of reality. But with Trump, I can't figure out, is he just dumb or is he so brain-damaged so I'm, I'm referencing back to the idea that he still wants to hire Flynn back. See, mm-hmm. to, to you and to a lot of liberals, that's like, aha, this is an obvious cover-up for the collusion of Russia because why else would you do that? Well, the only, there's another scenario here. You're that brain-damaged, you're that clueless, and you think that you're innocent, so therefore you think that there's nothing wrong with you bringing Flynn back. What, do you see where I'm heading with that? Yeah, and, you know, I, I think that's a distinct possibility. I don't deny that possibility at all. Um, you know, when I, I heard uh, President's speech in Saudi Arabia today, and he described his new policy of uh, going after terrorism as principled, principled realism, I said, <laughs> wait a minute, this guy who has no principles and doesn't have any idea what realism, what reality is, is talking about principled realism, that's a policy I don't have much confidence in. So, yeah, I, I think that um, it, it, the way you laid it out is very, very possible. So let's to be clear, if, if yeah. you had to guess, and I know you're just guessing, but, I right. mean, but do you think that Trump is just dumb uh, and therefore he doesn't understand how to do a cover-up, uh, or is he brain-damaged uh, to where we can't even properly inter- interpret his actions? I, I think laid out that way, I would probably guess the latter. So you think you th- he really doesn't? He really doesn't know what he's doing. And so, therefore, you think that it's possible that Trump really is an innocent dupe in all of this, that with regard to Russia. Oh, I think that's entirely possible. Now, which which scenario? Yeah. Which scenario? No, I, I never thought that. I never ever thought that Trump was smart enough to actually plot something with the Russians regarding the election. Because I don't, you know, I, I still think Trump thought to the day of the election he was not never going to win, and uh, he was. This was his little 
reality show, and he took it about as far as he could go, and that was it. And um, so I, I don't really think that, you know, that would indicate to me that if you buy that scenario, that this was his own reality show, then the, the collusion thing could not have been a serious effort for him. So in other words, you're suggesting <laughs> then that Trump may have committed acts of obstruction when there was never actually an underlying crime. No, I, well, I think he might have committed acts of instruction, acts of obstruction when there was not an underlying crime that he was aware of. Okay. And what would that, I think there, I think there, I think if the stories from the last couple of days are correct and there is now a person of interest that they have identified high up in the White House, right. that indicates to me that they have evidence of collusion. Now, it may not be um, uh, evidence that would lead to a conviction, but they have evidence that there was some collusion. Otherwise, they wouldn't have identified a person of interest right. uh, at collusion. Yeah. So, but, of course, that's, there's a lot of ifs there. I mean, first of all... Exactly. A lot of ifs there. A lot of people presume that that's Jared Kushner, and if it is J- right. Jared Kushner, it's really hard to imagine how it is that Kushner is his son-in-law, Manafort is campaign manager, and Flynn is top national security aide could all be in on this, and Trump not be, though, right? Um, you know, the more I see a Trump, that really doesn't seem that... Uh, uh, unreasonable to believe. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I can see how people are tr- constantly, if you're around Trump long enough, I'm sure that people are constantly trying to work around him because they have no idea how he will react to things. So that that really wouldn't, well, wouldn't let me, surprise me. Let, me. let me throw you another if theory. They were, if they were out there plotting, saying, hey, Donald doesn't know about this, but let's keep him in the dark. We'll, you know, no telling what he'll do if he finds out. <laughs> he may love it, but we'll, we'll give him plausible deniability and keep him, keep him away from it. We're all playing a little game anyway. So, in, you know, in the campaign. I think that that's, you know, that shows, one, your objectivity and, and open-mindedness. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's a good chance that that scenario is right. I have another scenario where... To your point about, and I think this is really important that people, this is a thing that people forget, that what you said about Trump never believing he was going to win is incredibly significant in evaluating his actions during the campaign. And when you think there's no real chance you're going to win, you will take chances, obviously, that you wouldn't ordinarily take. Because what, di- what difference does it make? And, and see, I think, with regard to Russia, that... Here's what I think happened. I think that there was some, this is a, just a guess on my part. I think that there, there was some low-level interactions that slowly worked its way up. And that if Trump knew about it, Trump saw this as a great business opportunity for when he lost. In other words, here he's been wanting to do business in Russia for a long time. He's had his pageant there. He's never been able to really break through in Russia. But in using the campaign to make business contacts for all intents and purposes, to ingratiate himself with Putin and the regime there, that this would pay financial dividends for him after he lost. What do you make about that? that Distinctly distinctly possible. See, but but what I think we're going to end, if that's right, or if there's anything close to that is right, John, 
where we're headed with this is going to be a really, this is already as weird as anyone's ever imagined, but it's going to be really weird. Let's pretend that there are impeachment proceedings. It's going to be really weird because what we're going to find, let's say I'm right or even close to right, is, is that an impeachable offense? Because it is effectively collusion, right? But for purposes, right. but that, but for purposes that that weren't what we we presumed them to be, because he never thought he was going to win the election. Yeah, well, that's possible, and you know, ultimately, the the, the what is an impeachable offense is whatever the Congress determines is an impeachable offense. Right, and you know, I, there was a fascinating piece that I read the other day, written by an academic somewhere who's spent a lot of time looking at the founding fathers and the Federalist Papers and so forth. And he had analyzed the article, the provision for impeachment, and he said it was clearly done for political reasons, that the idea was that you would impeach a president for what they called then maladministration, to protect society from further damage from a president who didn't know what he was doing. And so the, and the only reason they used the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors, because at the time they really didn't know how to describe what they wanted to do when they drafted that provision. And he quoted parts of the Federalist Papers where Hamilton and Madison were very, very clear. I mean, it's a, it's a persuasive argument that this was when I say political reasons, not partisan political reasons, because they didn't, there was nothing about, they didn't talk about parties back then. Right. But, but for purely uh, political reasons, when they deemed a president unfit and, would, and capable of damaging the republic, that this was the remedy. Um, so if you, if you look at that perspective on impeachment, then, you know, it's pretty easy to make a case right now <laughs> that you've got a guy who could do damage to the republic. All right, well let's uh, let's talk about that, John. All right, so let's I'll, let's play uh, fantasy world for a little for a second here. Okay, since mm-hmm. we're since we're in the Trump world, we're already in fantasy world. But, <laughs> we are, but yeah, l- exactly. l- let's talk about uh, some different scenarios. Let's pretend that um, by magic um, on Monday, uh, Democrats suddenly control the House of Representatives uh, based upon the cur- mm-hmm. but based upon the current. The current political climate and the current facts as we know them, uh, and let's presume that Comey testifies publicly and, and verifies a lot of what we think we already know. All right, so right. let's th- let's mm-hmm. throw that in there. Um, would the Democratic House begin impeachment proceedings immediately? Um, and Nancy Pelosi is speaker. Yeah, I would say no. Okay, tell me I why. Think, I think the the Nancy and the other members of leadership of Democratic Caucus right now, and I'm one of those, believes that any impeachment proceeding has to have a bipartisan um, uh, have bipartisan support. And that doesn't mean overwhelming, but we couldn't do it on a strictly party party line. Then it appears totally political, totally partisan, and as as a way to undo the uh, results of the election. That it can never be perceived that way, and I think Nancy right now believes that that's where we would be. Okay. That it would be perceived as being <clears throat> just an, a means of undoing the election. 
All right. So let's let's move forward then to the next scenario. Let's mm-hmm. say that Comey does testify. I still, by the way, have my doubts that he will testify publicly and openly anytime soon. Do you have any insight on that, by the way? Is the I don't have any insight. No, I, you know, he's agreed to do it, but I, uh, he's not there yet. My so. gut, my gut will be is telling me that I will be shocked if that actually happens, but. You know, it'd be great theater, no question about it. But let's well, let, let's say sure. let's say he testifies publicly, and uh, you know, let's say that, that everything we think we know uh, and more ends up being the reality. And then, you know, obviously, this is going to be a massive issue in the 2018 uh, you know general election. Y- you and everybody else in the house will be up for re-election, and you right. guys you guys are gonna you're gonna have a tightrope to walk on this impeachment issue because your base is gonna want it badly. Uh, and, and somewhat understandably, uh, yet, yep. yet you're not going to want to, um, you know, I think I don't think you're going to want to be overt about it. It's going to be kind of a wink, wink, nod, nod. Would you agree with that as far as uh, you, know, you know, how you're going to deal with this in 2018? I think, you've, I think, yes, you've identified the dilemma we would be in. OK, <laughs> right. Accurately. right. Yeah. So, so you give the wink, wink, nod, nod, uh, and then you win, which, you know, I think is very plausible. And you're not going to win by a ton. You're going to, you know, you, you might win a small majority in 2018. So 2019 right. comes around. Now what do you do? Because now you're going to be, now your base is going to be, uh, you know, basically uh, with pitchforks uh, ready for impeachment. What does the, the Democratic House do? Well, again, uh, you, you've made the assumption that the evidence is, as we think it's going to be, right, <laughs> that, right. that it's going to move in that direction, right. which is an important assumption. Um, and then we have to say, what, what's the, the posture in the Senate? So if the Senate's still in control Republicans, and we would be sending articles of impeachment to a Senate which we know is not going to convict, then my guess is that Nancy, if, if Nancy were then Speaker, right. uh, would probably say, this is not where we want to be. Interesting. I, you know, I raised this. I raised the same point in a, in a leadership conversation we had the other day that we're going to be in a tough spot with the pressure of our base uh, demanding impeachment when we may not think it's the right thing to do. And uh, I, I, so you've identified the same dilemma that I did the other day. Um, what was I, don't the, have the, I don't have the answer to that. What I was the, what was what was what was the reaction you got when you raised that dilemma? No, that. People understood that that's that that's going to be tough. Now, what's interestingly, the last few days so far, that has not materialized. You know what I said was, we're going. There's going to be one of our members who's going to file articles of impeachment. You know, I said I'd be stunned if somebody doesn't do it. Right. And you know, a day later, Al Green from Texas announced that he was going to do it. Right. <laughs> so um, now maybe Al's not um, established enough in the, in the Democratic. A hierarchy that people took that effort seriously, but we have not seen the outpouring of pressure yet uh, from our base to uh, to jump on board. That yeah, but if they give you the majority, John, if yeah, that'll be different. Exactly right. Yeah, they if they're exactly. <laughs> you guys are not going to be able to. I, 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 John, I, I and I get and respect where you're coming from, and I think you're right to tell the Democratic Caucus your concerns. But I think if if this goes down the path where it looks like it, and obviously this can change incredibly fast, yeah. but but let's you know presuming all things being equal, 
uh, and you guys take the House largely on this fervor for, for getting rid of Trump, and then you don't do it, uh, especially when almost, <laughs> when almost everybody who's voted was alive when Republicans did the same thing to Clinton— Right. I mean, mean, knowing there was no no real chance uh, of him ever being removed and they did it just for show. uh, I I mean, come on, John, you really think that that you're going to be able to withstand that kind of pressure? No, maybe not. I mean, it's it's going to be significant. I don't think there's any question about it. Now, now, I think that, again, based upon what we currently know and assuming it's it's verified, I think you guys can make a hell of a legal case. For for uh, in, in articles of impeachment, um, and and I, I'm I and I've actually been I, one of the things I've always felt about you guys is that you always overplay your hand. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think you're overplaying your hand on this. I really don't. <laughs> I th- I think you guys right. have been. Uh, can you explain to me why you guys have been fairly uh, disciplined so far in your response to this? Uh, what, did someone give a talking to everybody and and say? Uh, calm the heck down because i'm it's not like you guys to to be so disciplined what's going on (laughs) um well you you raise a good question and i'm not sure what the answer to that is i mean you know we've had our leadership's been pretty united on this saying um you know let's not get out over our skis on this let's let's wait There, there are five investigations at least going on right now if you consider the grand juries that have been empowered um, there's plenty of time. Let's wait till the case is overwhelming, and and we can get Republican support. So I think I mean I just think it's a really rational um, position to be in. And the other thing is, I, I think a lot of us say, you know, we have we probably just ought to get out of the Republicans' way. <laughs> in other you know? words, in other words, when the other guy is shooting themselves, yeah. you know, stop, yeah. don't stop it. Don't yeah. Don't get in the middle of it. Just let let it all unfold. Let them do whatever they're going to do, and um, we'll figure out the the right move at, at the appropriate point. I also think that you're t- the two people have been you know the the most uh, prominent spokespeople. Uh, you know Schiff in the House and Blumenthal in the Senate. That th- these these guys are, seem pretty solid guys. I mean they 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 they're very knowledgeable and they don't seem to be jumping the gun. Uh, would you agree with that? Yes, I do. I, I don't know Blum, Senator Blumenthal at all. I've never even spoken to him, but Adam Schiff is, is just as solid as, as they come and is doing a, a phenomenal guy and always appears and sounds extremely rational, and it, which is he, what he is. Um, he's a great face for us and a great voice on this issue, so I'm, I'm glad he's out there a lot. Well, uh, well I fully expect, John, that, um, that in uh, early 2019 you're going to be a house impeachment manager and <laughs> um and that you're you're going to play the role of lindsey graham in the uh in the impeachment of uh of donald trump uh the only difference being that uh unlike graham in south carolina you in kentucky aren't in a state where you can eventually become a senator uh because right. be, because of being a, a house impeachment manager but but what do you make of um the scenario i just outlined um, well, I, it's certainly possible. What can I tell you? <laughs> I'm running again. I, I'm, you know, I'd love to be uh, chairman of the House Budget Committee, which I would be if we took the majority back. So, yeah. Well, I, mean, let- I, I, mean, I wish the election were tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> if the election were tomorrow, John, what do you think the result would be? 
I think we'd pick up at least 30 seats, could be as many as 40. Um, you know, the, the, all the generic preference polls on who people want to control Congress, they range from 7% uh, Democratic edge to 16%. 7% is enormous. 16% is historic. Um, I think 16% is crazy, but even at, at 7 to 10%, that's a 40 seat pickup and we need to, we need to pick up 24 right now. Now you, you mentioned that uh, you're on the, uh, you're actually the ranking member of the, the budget house budget committee right now. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to ask you, cause I, I, I'm curious if you're going to agree with the theory I have. I wanted to ask you about the negotiations that went down for the most, the most recent, I don't even, would you call it, a, is it called technically a budget or was it just a, a bill to keep the government funded. I, I, I don't even. Well, it's really it, it, yeah. It's not a budget. It was an omnibus funding bill. Okay. It's an omnibus, omnibus appropriations bill. So okay. it, it basically appropriated funding for the last five months of the fiscal year. Okay. Now, I want you to give us. And obviously, you're the Demo- you're Democrat. You you were involved in it as the ranking member of the of the, the House Budget Committee. But give us your evaluation <laughs> of how badly Republicans and Donald Trump got their asses kicked in that negotiation? Well, let, let's um, talk about where they wanted to start. So the, the administration proposed that we, in, again, we're dealing with the last five months, the fiscal year, that we increase funding for the Defense Department by $18 billion and decrease funding for what we call non-defense discretionary spending, which is everything the government does other than defense that the Congress has control over. So the Congress has, doesn't have control over what we spend on Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and interest on the debt. Those are called mandatory spending. That's roughly $2.7 trillion out of a $3.7 trillion annual expenditures. We have control over a trillion dollars. Defense is a little bit more than half of that. And then everything else is non-defense. So they wanted $18 billion increase on defense, $18 billion cut in non-defense. What we ended up with was, I'm sorry, they wanted a $30 billion increase in defense and an $18 billion cut in non-defense. We ended up with a $21 billion increase in defense and a $10 billion increase in non-defense. So if you, you kind of say, well, the Republicans are on the defense side, Democrats are on the non-defense side, Republicans gave nine billion, up on $9 billion on the defense side, and they gave up on uh, $28 billion on the um, non-defense side. So, you know, and just in terms of sheer dollars as to what the administration wanted, they got their butts handed to them. All right, let's let's put it. You're a golfer. Trump's a golfer. Let's let's put it in yeah. in terms people might be able to more easily understand. If this if this budget negotiation was an 18 hole match play event between Republicans and Democrats, what was the the final outcome? Well, I would say uh, we won uh, probably four and three. Wow, I thought it was going to be worse than that. <laughs> four, four and three is a shellacking, but it's not as bad as, as, as I thought maybe you were going to say. I thought maybe you were going to give yeah. me a seven and six or something like that. But, uh, <laughs> not quite that bad. Not, not quite that well, But why, why is it when Republicans hold— let me, John, let me, let me explain why I say that. Because, wow, that's what the administration wanted. That's really not what House Republicans wanted. 
Uh huh. Okay. Or Senate Republicans. So nobody wanted to, for instance, House Republicans didn't want to slash NIH funding, National Institutes of Health, which is medical research. They didn't want to slash that by $1.2 billion uh, for the last five months. Uh, they didn't want to zero out uh, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting or community development block grants or um, National Endowment for the Arts or National Endowment for the Humanities, which is what the administration wanted to do. So while, so that's why I say we uh, we kick butt in terms of what Donald Trump and Mick Mulvaney wanted, not so much what House and Senate Republicans wanted. So why did Trump lose so badly here when it seemed, you know, I, I was told, I don't know if you heard this, I was told he was a great negotiator uh, <laughs> and, 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 that, and that we were going to win so much we were going to get tired of winning. Um, so, yeah. so why did the great, the great negotiator with, with control of both houses of Congress, how did he get his butt kicked here? <laughs> well... I'm not sure that he knew what he was talking about when he made those claims. I mean, clearly, going back to our initial conversation, uh, when we talked about how little understanding he has of government, how it works, and the separation of powers and all of those things, uh, I don't think he had any inclination of what he was up against, and or even the process. And to be honest, I'm not so sure that he even knew what was in Mick Mulvaney's demands. Because you know, Mick Mulvaney, who's a friend of mine, by the way, he's the director of the Office of Management and Budget, a former House mm-hmm. member from South Carolina, pretty good golfer, by the way. <laughs> and um, and Mick's, Mick's the one who proposed those numbers, the $30 billion increase in, in defense and $18 billion cut in non-defense. And I doubt if Trump ever knew that. And what Mick said when he, when he was justifying those levels, he said, I just tried to interpret what President Trump said on the campaign trail. So that was his interpretation. It wasn't necessarily what Donald Trump wanted. So, I, again, when you say, did he get killed in the negotiation, I'm not sure he even knew what he was negotiating for. Sounds like a great negotiator to me. Um, yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> um, one other thing, a couple other things before we, we leave you uh, uh, with Congressman John Yarmouth, the Democrat from Kentucky. Um, you, you mentioned uh, the the issue of not just um, the the budget, and but also I want to ask you about what happened with Obamacare, the the supposed repeal and replacement. Now, there's been some speculation that because of some technical issues, the House may have to revote on that, you know, much ballyhooed and way overblown uh, vote that the House took a couple weeks ago. Is this true? And if so, is it simply a technical issue? Or do you think that this could actually end up never passing again? No. And believe me, all of us, I think we found out about this on Thursday. So it, it was news to all of us because this is a couple weeks after the, the bill passed the House, 217 to 213. And, um, you know, we're following this stuff day to day and didn't know that they had never sent the bill to the House. But if you remember, they did not have a... Sent, a, sent the bill to the a, Senate. A, a, they sent the Senate. They did not have a CBO score when, we, when they passed the bill in the House, CBO being an evaluation by the Congressional Budget Office of the economic impact of the legislation. And, I mean, it's almost unheard of that you pass a bill without a CBO score. So now what they're saying is 
they have to get a CBO. They're going to, I think it's coming in Tuesday. The CBO score will be available. And depending on what that shows, they may have to bring it back to the house, make some corrections, vote on it again, or they can't pass it with with only 51 votes in the Senate. Right. That's the key. That's the key. It has to be, has to be, has to be a reconciliation. Right. And, um, and so it may not qualify because of some technicalities in the CBO score, which most people that I've read seem to think that that's what's going to happen. So if that, (laughs) if that occurs and it goes back to the house, you think it passes again? I think it's, I think it's more difficult than it was the last time. And they, you know, they were uh, twisting arms right and left to get it through the last time, obviously with a 217 to 213 margin. Um, after all these guys are go- and women are going home and getting beaten up over what what they're doing and what this bill and the fact that there is nobody out there who's for it. I mean, it had it had 17 percent approval rating in the polls. Every you know, every health advocacy group is against it. The doctors, the nurses, the hospitals, insurance companies, everybody's against it. Um, people say, "Well, why are you passing it?" And again, Mick Mulvaney, in a moment of Typical candor for him. I, again, he's he's very open. When he was asked about what the haste was to pass this bill on national television, he said, "Well, we need political momentum, and we need to pass this so we can do tax reform." So here he's they're trying to pass a bill that affects the health care of 300 million Americans, and it's not because of health; <laughs> it's because of tax reform and politics. Well, boy, that would be a political death blow if this thing went back up for a vote and 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 the Republicans were not able to pass it. Yeah, uh, the, yeah. It, I mean, it would be very tough for Republicans, but but they've always been in a in a lose lose situation on health care, as far as I was concerned. All right, last question for you, John. I, mm-hmm. I, and this goes back to the big picture with regard to Trump. You said something recently. I don't even know if you remember it, but you probably will. Uh, that you you thought that. Uh, Senate Majority uh, Leader Mitch McConnell, uh, with whom you've had an interesting relationship over the years, uh, also from Kentucky, uh, you said that uh, you felt that he would, and I'm paraphrasing here, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you thought that eventually that he was going to have, you know, like a uh, come-to-Jesus moment uh, not your words, mine, uh, with regard, with regard to Trump and that, uh, that he would eventually be forced to, to do the right thing with regard to alleviating, uh, this problem from the country. First of all, did I, how badly did I butcher what you said with regard no, to close enough, close, close enough, close enough. So I, I, I'm curious, do you, do you really believe that that's what's going to happen? You think that eventually Mitch McConnell's going to say, you know what? Enough is enough. I, I I'm, I'm abandoning Trump. Mitch McConnell will, um, and, and I'm not saying he will do this out of any noble impulse, but Mitch McConnell, when he understands clearly that his position, that the Republican Party's uh, stature and power and the institution that he leads are jeopardized by Donald Trump, he will shut Donald Trump down. I'm convinced of that. And I think you're seeing hints of it already. Like what? Well, when he says we could do with less drama out of the White House, when when he agrees with Chuck Schumer to have the briefing um, uh, from Rosenstein, when you know normally he just wouldn't pay any attention to what Chuck Schumer said, but Chuck Schumer said we need this briefing. Mitch says let's do it. So I think you're seeing slowly he's he's t- he's taking. You know, he's sensing the wind. He's taking uh, the temperature of his members in the Senate. 
And when he realizes that, again, that the entire thing that he's worked his entire life to assemble is about to, um, is about to be destroyed, he will take Trump on. So you think that there's a reasonable scenario where if McConnell believes it's in his political best interest to do so, that he will favor removing Donald Trump from office? Yes, absolutely. Wow, that would be that would really be something. Uh, and, and and this is coming from a guy who is an ardent McConnell critic, uh, as, 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 you, <laughs> oh, yeah. as, as you are. Uh, um, oh, yeah. that, that reminds but, me. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, but, you know, Mitch, I, again, I've known Mitch for going on 50 years, 49 years. 1968, I, I met Mitch and um, been around him a fair amount since then. And Mitch uh, is this one of the coldest, shrewdest <laughs> political operatives that's ever um, walked on this earth. And I know, I know what his priorities are. And his priorities are not defending Donald Trump, somebody who he did, who he didn't support anyway. And but again, his priority is maintaining Republican ascendancy in in the Senate and his position as majority leader. And if he thinks that he can maintain that position and that that power by shutting Trump down, he'll do it. I agree with your assessment of McConnell. I just don't know whether or not uh, he'll have the balls to, to go all the way with, with regard to Trump. But what you're really saying is that this means that Trump keeping his approval ratings at least in the 30s is really critical. Because if it goes into the 20s, McConnell will pull the plug, right? I, mean, uh, I, I think you're totally right. Absolutely. Uh, and All right. Last question for you. A scale of 1 to 10, uh, your colleagues in the, uh, the Republican House, I know you, you guys – aren't friends, but you talk a lot. It's like high school. Yeah. Everybody talks <laughs> behind, you know, closed doors. Uh, scale one to 10, last uh, week or so, what has been the level of Republican freakout over Donald Trump? Hmm. 13. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's pretty much sums it up. Well, John, we always love talking to you because you're, you're the most honest Democrat I know and, uh, and a good friend, and I really appreciate the time. And, and uh, let's catch up uh, off the air sometime. All right, great. Well, tell Allison and Gracie um, hi for me. Will do. Thanks, John. Okay, John. That's uh, Congressman uh, John Yarmuth uh, from Kentucky, always uh, telling it like it is. You won't get a, a more honest. Uh, that was a heck of an interview on a lot of different levels. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you did, make sure you do uh, two things. That's all I ever ask of you. Number one, share this uh, podcast via social media, Facebook, Twitter, what have you, and word of mouth. And number two, do yourself a favor. And if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you do, you use sheets, uh, make sure you stay tuned to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed. Ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. 
Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.